Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Did you know that the average person spends 45 to 60 minutes a day waiting in line? Which means that we spend, on average, three years of our life waiting in line. Wouldn't it be awesome if we didn't have to wait? Why do we have to? Today we're going to address these questions and more in our study in John. So grab a Bible and turn to John chapter 4 verses 43 through 54 because this message is entitled, Losing Our Patience. Do you ever hate waiting? I recently read a poem that says, Patience is a virtue, possess it if you can. It's seldom found in women, but never in a man. And all the women said, Amen. (laughs) This poem was clearly written by a woman who got rushed out of her house by her husband. So the truth is, is that we all hate to wait. Companies are actually cashing in on our low tolerance for waiting because they know that we will pay more money just so we don't have to wait. So for example, you can buy a speed pass at Six Flags or at Disneyland to allow you to skip the line. Or you can purchase a higher price ticket at the airport so you can get priority to get on the plane first. I think that's kind of silly, truthfully, because the plane takes off at the same time for everyone. But you and I will pay a higher amount of money just to get on and off first. Um, another example is priority mail. Ma- mail. Like we, we pay more money to get our mail faster because we hate waiting. We have an extremely low threshold for waiting. But did you know that there's actually a science as to why we hate waiting so much? Psychologists have uncovered the real reason why we hate waiting. Uh, what they say is, is that what we hate most about the waiting in line isn't the wait time. It's the boredom, anxiety, and uncertainty we feel about how long we're going to have to wait. So in the 1950s, there was a study done by a psychologist in Manhattan. Uh, Apparently, workers in a high-rise office building constantly complained about the tremendously long wait time to ride the elevator. And this affected their lives in in more than one way. I mean, like they'd had to get up earlier to to, to get to work on time because they didn't know how long the elevator was going to take. They got shorter lunch breaks because, you know, again, they had to get back to work. And it affected when they actually got to get home. So, in order to address this problem, the company didn't install more elevators to reduce the wait time. They didn't encourage people to take the stairs. They instead followed a psychologist's recommendation. See, the psychologists speculated that they were just bored. They're full of anxiety and uncertainty as to how long they were going to have to wait. And so he says, let's give them something to do. So, instead of installing more elevators, the company just installed mirrors next to the elevators so that people could look at themselves and other people while they waited. It didn't reduce the, you know, the, the time that they had to wait. It didn't make them get to work faster or get a longer lunch break or get them home quicker. It just gave them something to do. And wouldn't you know it, the complaints stopped almost completely. Now, I've noticed this several times during sermons that um, people don't truly mind sitting through a long sermon just as long as it's interesting. In fact, a long, interesting sermon is better than a short, boring one. Amen? Well, you don't sound convinced, friend. Companies like Disney and Six Flags have become masters of how to to keep people happy while they wait. For example, um, they have dressed up people in Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck costumes who walk by and wave. And we think, oh, they're here to take a picture with me. But their true purpose is to distract us while we wait in line. They want to keep us happy. Now, Disney has learned to display their wait time in Six Flags. They display their wait times on their rides to help estimate exactly how long this is going to take. And that eliminates the anxiety and uncertainty that we might feel when we stand in line. 
But did you know that they always overestimate how long that line will be? For example, if they said that it was going to take an hour and it only takes 45 minutes, customers are relieved and even happy about the wait time even though they had to stand in line for 45 minutes just to ride one ride. Um, if in, they did that in reverse, they said it was going to take 30 minutes and it ended up taking 45. Now we're upset because we had to stand 45 minutes in line just to ride one ride. It's the same amount of time. They figured out that it's not the, the waiting in line that bothers us. It's the uncertainty and the anxiety and the boredom that we might feel. You don't hate waiting. You hate the boredom. You hate the uncertainty and the anxiety that comes with the wait time, and that is true in any culture. For example, whenever um, we were in India, we did a medical camp for around 500 villagers. And when they figured out it was first come, first serve, they didn't form a nice, neat little line like we asked them to. They rushed the table. They were elbowing and kicking and even screaming just so they could get in line first. And we had to develop a number system just to prevent a riot. I'm telling you, it was, it was rough. And the reason why is because Everybody hates waiting. We hate waiting, but what if waiting were actually a good thing? Each of us has a desire, I think, for instant gratification. Uh, but with that overwhelming desire for instant gratification, there comes a dilemma. Delayed gratification usually comes with a greater reward. And so we ask ourselves the question, should we eat the egg now or wait for the hen tomorrow? These dilemmas are known as intertemporal choices. We have to decide between an immediate smaller, smaller reward now or a delayed and greater outcome later. And I think when faced with an intertemporal choice, we subconsciously weigh the rewards in our mind. Should we wait in line at bank for our deposit or should we go do something else and have to come back later? Should we buy the 70-inch the 4K TV now or save for retirement for later? Should we enjoy the chocolate cake now after dinner? Or should we continue to stick to our diet and have a beach body that we truly desire for the summertime? See, the problem is, is that we often face, uh, uh, in pursuit of this instant gratification, is that when we do that all the time, when we pursue that instant gratification all the time and avoid the weight, not only are we viewed as impulsive, but we often miss out on the bigger things of life. Why do you think credit card debt is at an all-time high? And places like Aaron's and Rent-A-Center are so popular. It's because we will pay more money just so we don't have to wait. We don't like to wait for things. We want them now. And because of our desire for instant gratification, we end up missing the, the, the bigger opportunities. We'll pay more money just so we don't have to wait. And because we have less money, we can afford to do less. Now, if there was ever a man who lived who knew how to wait, it was Jesus. In fact, in today's passage, he's going to display extreme patience. And the million-dollar question we should ask is, why? Why did he wait? Today, we're going to study John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. But keep in mind that when we left off in John, Jesus and his disciples had just witnessed the work of the Holy Spirit in the Samaritan people. And they even begged Jesus to stay with them for as long as he was willing. And so Jesus agrees to stay for two days. See if you can spot the contrast that John is going to make between the Samaritans and the Jews. John chapter 4, 
verses 43 through 54 says, After the two days he went forth there from Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he had begun to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew it was just in that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, for some reason in this passage, we see Jesus having extreme patience. And Jesus has patience with our immaturity. Notice that John mentions that Jesus himself testified that a prophet in his own hometown has no honor. Now, uh, Mark 6 gives us a little more insight than John does regarding Jesus in his own hometown. In fact, uh, Mark says that people were not just surprised that Jesus was teaching and preaching and doing miracles. Mark says that the people were offended that Jesus was teaching, preaching, and doing miracles. And the reason why is because in Jewish culture, the only people who were supposed to be teaching were the ones that were sanctioned by the Sanhedrin, the people who had been given authority by the people in authority. A person could get away with teaching if they went to a town where they weren't known. In other words, if you weren't sure if this person's been sanctioned or not, you'd be more likely to accept what they had to say. But the fact that Jesus went to his own hometown where people knew who he was and who his family members were, he was rejected and received hostility from them. So in Mark 6, 3, they even referred to him as Mary's son. This is interesting because people were always known by who their father was, not their mother. And it's possible that the reason they did this was because Joseph had already died, and that's why they're referring to him as, as Mary's son. But I'm willing to bet that they were referring to him as Mary's son because of the scandal Mary had partaken in and that she became pregnant before she was married. In other words, Jesus would have never been sanctioned by the Sanhedrin because, in people's minds, he was a son of illegitimacy. Not that he was born of a virgin, but that he was born of a woman who went and got pregnant before she got married. For whatever reason, Jesus was stripped of honor when he ministered to his own people. And it's incredible how Jesus... All he had to do in Samaria was just talk to a woman. All he did was talk to her. And the whole town got saved. Yet in Galilee, where Jesus did many miracles, including turning water into wine, people still refused to submit to him. It's disgusting, but the same dynamic happens in churches today. The people who had been in church for the longest are often the hardest people to reach. For example, church kids. Church kids um, are so much harder to minister to than, than kids off the street. And the question is, why? The reason why is because they have familiarity with Christ. 
And they can that familiarity with Christ can often stand in the way of the Holy Spirit working. Um, I, a book I had read recently refers to uh, certain people in church as PEBOs, uh, which is an acronym, acronym that stands for um, people in body onlys. So uh, being a PEBO is when your heart has been hardened and you aren't on fire for God. A PEBO goes to church, mostly out of routine, and expects to see great things from God before they will even move an inch in his direction. But isn't it interesting some wait for a sign from God before they'll move, and others just simply hear him speak and they jump out in faith. This shouldn't, you know, it really should be a, a clear indicator that it doesn't matter how long a person has been in church, spiritual maturity is not a guarantee. Well, how does a person mature in Christ? I believe scripture teaches us the only way a believer matures in Christ is when they continually turn their hearts over to him. Well, why do we refuse to turn over our hearts? Because turning over our hearts is yet another intertemporal choice. We have to weigh whether the reward for instant gratification now is better than delayed gratification and an eternal reward later. Not to mention the delayed gratification is often painful. Turning over our hearts, it hurts. But without turning our hearts over, we will never be moving towards that spiritual maturity in Christ. And it pains God when we refuse to turn to him, when we refuse to be mature. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 23, 37, Jesus weeps for how desperately he wanted the Jews to turn to him when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I have longed to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Could the same be said of us? I called you. But you weren't willing. If so, it's because we don't see how great the reward is. And even though we don't turn to him, for some reason, Jesus is still patient with us in our immaturity. And we prove our immaturity when we try to make deals with God. A clear indicator of spiritual immaturity is when we, we use a barter system with God. For example, we see this system being used by Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, verse 20, when he says, uh, when it says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take, and if he will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and if I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And sure, it sounds ridiculous, but we use the very same barter system, don't we? God, if you will just make this problem go away, I'll read my Bible every day and I'll go to church every Sunday, I promise. And if you'll just keep me safe during this time, then, then I'll be the best little follower of Jesus that I can be. Or even, God, if you just, just let me have this one little sin, I'll do whatever you want me to do over there in that, in that area. Just leave this one little sin alone, okay, God? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, in, uh, the 1978 movie, The End with Burt Reynolds. In it, he decides he wants to die, the main character. He decides, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to commit suicide. And so that's basically what he does the whole time. He tries to kill himself. And spoiler alert, um, at the end of the movie, he swims out in the middle of the ocean, and he tries to drown himself. But as he drown, he's drowning himself, he realizes that he truly wants to keep living. 
And so he starts to swim back to shore and he says, Lord, if you save me, I promise I won't try to kill myself anymore. Just make me a better swimmer. I'll be a better father, a better husband. I'll keep all the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Obey the father, thy father and mother and, and, and thou shalt not... Um, uh, okay, God, I'll learn the Ten Commandments, then I'll keep every one of them. And I'll give you 50% of my income. And he starts making these deals with God. But as he gets closer and closer to the shore, when he feels like, okay, I'm going to make it, he says, okay, God, 10% of my income seems fair. fair. You know, I know I said 50, but nobody does that. Come on, God, I'll give you 10%. And when he gets to the shore, he says, you know what, God, never mind. I don't need you. Now, it's a silly movie. But it's an honest look at the way our barter system works. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't seem to accept our currency in the barter system we use with him? And that's probably because he knows that if we won't do those things for him now, we're not going to do them later. You see, in our text, Jesus encounters a man who has a sick and dying son. And one of the verses has really been bothering me ever since I read it and it really began studying this passage for this message. And I'll let you be the judge of whether or not I'm being fair. In verse 47, it says, When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. My question is, why didn't this man seek Jesus sooner? He knew where he was. Why did he have to wait until Jesus came close to him and his son was at the point of death? Again, maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe this man didn't want to leave his son to die behind him. And, and maybe he just wanted to be there when it happened. I don't know. But it is interesting that after this bold request this man makes to Jesus, the Lord rebukes him. And in Jesus' rebuke, we see a key word for every immature barter system that we try to use. Unless. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. We use this with God. God, unless you do this, I'm not going to do that. God, unless you give me what I want, I'm not going to give you what you want. So Jesus corrects this man, and then this man does something pretty ugly out of desperation. He plays the guilt card on Jesus. Yes, it's out of de desperation, but it's still there. Uh, he says, sir, if you don't come with me, my child will die. Now try to read the lines between what you see here, and you might begin to get a picture of what's really going on. This man knew that Jesus could heal his son, yet he didn't seek him out sooner. This man knew that he should have turned to him whenever he heard Jesus' name. But because he was a royal official, he most likely had some pride that had to be dealt with. I can guarantee you that this man did exactly what you and I would have done if we were in his situation. We would exhaust every single resource we had and when we had nothing left, then we would turn to Christ. Why did this man wait so long before he sought out Jesus? Because of the cost. He weighed the cost in his mind. And he said, I just don't know if the reward is worth it. Following Jesus today means you're going to miss out on some instant gratification. Turning my heart over to him now means I have to turn over things that bring me pleasure. And if those things weren't pleasurable, I wouldn't do them. But just think about all the things that Christians don't get to do anymore. Did you know that the first Christian emperor, Constantine, didn't get baptized until his deathbed? The reason why was because he thought baptism was what washes away a person's sin. In short, his mindset was, 
I'd love to commit to God now, but I got a lot more sinning to do. Jesus said in Luke 9:62, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks backward is fit for the for the kingdom of God." In other words, you can't be a Christian and regret leaving your lifestyle of sin. You have to see where your sin gets you. And so Jesus is patient with us in our immaturity. He sees the proof of our immaturity in our barter system. But Jesus ministers to us anyway. In this passage, Jesus says to the man, Go, your son lives. And Scripture records that in that moment that Jesus said, Your son lives, the boy is healed, and the fever leaves him. And the man and his entire household turns to Christ. The man knew he should have turned to Jesus sooner, and it was only out of desperation that he turned to Jesus when he did. Would the man have turned to Jesus had he not been desperate? I think the answer is no, none of us do. And Jesus knows this. He knew this with this man. But he healed his son anyway. Why? How is Jesus so patient with us? Why would Jesus leave a group of people who were seeking, and then he goes to a group of people that thought they had it all figured out, and that they knew him best, and they didn't need him? Why would Jesus go through all of that? Why would Jesus go through all the trouble of the cross? It's because Jesus knew the reward. We know that crucifixion was one of the most brutal punishments that any man could suffer at the hands of the Romans. Yet Jesus endured it. Why? What in the world would be worth all that pain, humiliation, and heartache? What did Jesus see? Jesus saw you. You see, every slap across the face, every moment of pain that he felt when the crown of thorns was pressed into his head, every pulse of agony that he endured when the hammer struck the nails, all of it was for you. Every step Jesus took carrying his cross was a step closer to you. It's the whole reason why he's so patient. He saw what he really wanted, and he threw away the instant gratification and endured even torture just so that he could have the greater reward, so that he could have you. Now, in contrast, we're nothing like Jesus. We use a barter system. But did you notice that Jesus doesn't use our barter system? He didn't say, if you'll turn to me now, then I'll die for you on the cross later. He didn't reserve payment until his demands were met. He sacrificed his demands, and he made payment in advance. Spiritual maturity is doing what Jesus did. Is there an unless in your conversation with God? Let me ask the question a different way. Is there anything that could cause you not to serve God? And be careful how you answer that, because the Apostle Peter said to Jesus in Luke twenty two thirty three, Lord, with you I am ready to go to both prison and death. But Jesus knew the truth. See, the truth is, is you can't be ready to die for Christ until you're living for him. And, and Peter had a huge unless in his vocabulary. And he denied Jesus three times before the next morning. And Peter said in his heart, unless 
the Lord keeps me from physical harm, I'm not going to follow him. So even if you don't know what your unless is, God does. Is there an unless in your vocabulary? Is there anything keeping you from intimacy with Jesus now? You can continue to enjoy the reward from instant gratification if you like. But if you do that, not only are you cheating yourself out of a greater reward, you're bringing upon yourself something that you don't want. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin doesn't bring life. It brings death. And intimacy with God through eternal life is the ultimate reward. Think about your life as if you owed a million dollars to a lender. You, you would spend the rest of your life trying to pay that back and never, probably never make a dent. But then Jesus steps in and he agrees to pay that debt for you. You don't owe anyone anything anymore. And while all your debt is taken care of, you're still poor. You see, following Jesus is more than just having that debt taken care of. It's how to find true wealth here on earth. He wants to lead you towards spiritual maturity so that you can find nourishment for your soul and never want another thing in your life. Don't be the person who feels like it's enough to just live debt-free. Build wealth in following the Lord. Spend time in His presence and you will see your life, not in terms of all the things that you have to do for God and you don't get to do anymore, but instead all the things you get to do for God and all those things you don't have to do anymore. God is patient with us because if He weren't, we would be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15 says, The Lord is not slow as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish. He says in verse 15, Regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Because friends, that's exactly what His patience is. So if we hate waiting, we're going to have to find a way to just deal with our boredom, our anxiety, and our uncertainty that we might feel. And if you're bored, spend time with Jesus. If you're anxious, cast all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. Maybe you're overwhelmed with the uncertainty because you know that you should be further along in your relationship with Him than you are. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.6, Be certain about this. God, who began His good work within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In closing, I just want to say that you can be confident and know that even though you hate waiting, that waiting, it produces perseverance in us. And perseverance must finish its work so we can be complete and not lacking anything. And even if you get frustrated and you lose your patience, just know that if you're in Christ, you may have lost your patience, but God hasn't lost you. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. 
Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.